Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop alongside me, Shelby King. Shelby, what is going on in the world of digital publishing right now? Is it is it still is still I guess it's we're at the end of Q3 and here here comes Q4 now. So we're we're finally here, Q4. Yeah. Um I mean, there's still a lot going on, but it's also been a busy week in the office, so um, sometimes it's hard to keep track of everything, um, but we're definitely going to hit on some topics that are kind of trending right now. Um, the first thing I wanted to start off with, though, today is a few tips for starting a newsletter. Um, so we've talked a lot about newsletters in past episodes, but uh, I don't think we've ever really, or maybe we have, and it's just been so many episodes, <laughs> shared uh, <laughs> some good tips to start one. Um, so this is from What's New in Publishing, and the first one is to start quickly but slowly, meaning don't overthink it in the beginning and give yourself some time to discover what works for you. Um, don't worry about aiming for many readers while you're still in the discovery phase, but instead ask a few friends and experts for advice and feedback. Yeah, I think I think um, it's, it's that way with any kind of content that you're creating, right? You're trying to create content for the rabid fan and figure out how do I make something for them that's appealing um, to more people like them? And um, there's a couple newsletters that I subscribe to that I look forward to getting. And I would say there's probably a niche of people that fit that in the same way that there's people that like to listen to podcasts. There's people that like to read newsletters. The ratio of newsletters that I like to read versus newsletters that I get, um, it's probably pretty small, meaning there's like three that I enjoy reading and there's probably like 20 that somehow I haven't unsubscribed from yet. So I think what you want to do is try to maximize your ability to identify, um, you know, who are, who are those people that are um, really looking forward to your newsletter? And then how do you cater more towards uh, what it is they're looking for? And, and how could you expand that maybe? Yeah, that's actually pretty much touched exactly on the next topic, which is fo- focus on a niche audience. Um, I really like the example that they stated in the article, though. Um, it was, don't start a newsletter for millenni- millennial women. Start a newsletter for millennial women paying off student debt. So j- uh, just get really hyper-focused in on there. Yeah, I think because of the way that the internet is, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I always, I've probably barely mentioned it on this podcast in different ways, but I do uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is insanely popular and... Um, but no one knows it. Like from the standpoint of if you don't do jujitsu or know someone that does, or you live in a place like so- SoCal where it seems like it's everywhere, it seems like this weird niche sport, but it's actually really large. If you look at the size of the community, it's big enough to support, you know, multiple publishers and different things along those lines. And what we're talking about there is this kind of like niche martial arts and even going deeper, it's the sport behind the niche martial arts. And so I think when you start to, you mentioned kind of millennial moms, that's what you said, millennial moms? Uh, Millennial women. Millennial women uh, that are paying off a student debt. Millennial moms paying off student debt may even be a tighter one that you could do. But that audience is actually uh, really large and um, you could be that voice. There may not be a good one for that one yet. So Right. Um, And the last tip was choose the right newsletter format. Um, So NPR actually has a chart called the Newsletter Consumption Continuum that shows which formats are good for newsletters that are meant to be read through and which ones are good for newsletters that are meant to be clicked through or a mix of both. Um, I didn't even know that 
you know, there are different formats for different intentions, but that's probably a really good thing to pay attention to. Yeah, totally. I, I, it's funny. I, I, again, I get multiple newsletters and that I look forward to and they're actually, they're all different. So one is uh, mobile fix, uh, by Simon Andrews. And it's, it's very, um, can, contextual based so like he almost like writes uh out a long newsletter but within it there are lots of links to basically things that are going on globally in the world of digital um and then there's another one that i get that's sort of like our five bullet friday newsletter which is kind of like they curate five top stories and almost every single time it's a new story that i i didn't read that week from you know live science or something where i you know i don't know how else i would have maybe came in contact with that article um you know, social media used to be a great tool for that. Now it's it's a little bit more polluted, so it's hard to get in there. And so having someone that, you know, covers topics that you like uh, and have them curate stuff is kind of cool. Yeah. So um, the next topic is something more on the advertiser side, but um, something we've been following and covering in past episodes. So uh, Facebook has agreed to pay advertisers over their inflated video stats. Finally. Finally. Class action lawsuit finally pays off. (laughs) There you go. On Monday, the terms of the settlement were filed, and it's revealed that uh, Facebook has agreed to pay $40 million for the faulty metrics that were provided um, over an 18-month period in 2015 and 2016. So the class action lawsuit claimed that 1.35 million advertisers could have been affected. Um, for those who don't remember what happened, the social network claims that they used a bad formula to calculate the average amount of time uh, people spent watching on videos, which could have led marketers to believe their videos were more popular than they actually were. Facebook also said that the error only affected videos that marketers posted on their social pages for free and did not affect paid ads. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, publishers, this is who it really affects. $40 million is nothing, right, for someone like Facebook. But beyond it being nothing in terms of, uh, you know, like the punishment, uh, you know, there's a lot, if you look at the last couple of years, there's been a lot of major publishers that have been acquired or conglomerated, Sports Illustrated, um, uh, the New York was it the New York Post last week? Um, one of those. Sorry, New York. Yeah, but. something I remember Refinery Refinery Twenty One and I think Vice just yeah, had some sort yeah, of yeah yeah. So they that's another recent conglomeration. Mashable was another one. Um, so a lot of those publishers were uh, roped up in the famous pivot to video, which was largely. Um, a lot of that was pushed by Facebook and due to the fact that people were seeing these huge video views on Facebook on organic reach stuff. And, you know, whenever you start seeing like, oh, wow, look at all these eyeballs that I've got. And it's more than what you maybe have on YouTube. Um, it's not such an innocent little error because if you're Facebook and you're like, I'm trying to compete as a video platform with someone like Google, um, you know, if you're a publisher, where do you want to spend your time? Where all the people are viewing it, obviously, you know, on YouTube, I'm only getting 10,000. And then on Facebook, I'm getting 41,000. And then it turns out that's not really the case. So I, 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 I mean, it's great that the class action took place now, but it's just another reason why um, you should always be collecting your own data um, as best as possible. Um, and measuring things according to the things that affect your business because walled gardens are terrible for data. So Facebook, same thing with advertising. It's They've gotten rid of a lot of traditional advertising metrics and replaced it with their 
kind of unique versions of those same metrics. And it's because, um, you know, they realized over time that tracking things based on what happens on your website via tag is not at all how they want to measure things. So they'd rather measure it in turn like engagement. Right. Um, so you kind of touched on different conglomerations going on. Um, my next topic is about Taboola and Outbrain uh, merging together. So Taboola and Outbrain are set to become a single company. And although they no longer have to worry about competing with one, one another for business, publishers are facing some concerns about lower payouts. So in the years leading up to the merger, the battle for supremacy was good for publishers. Um, they were able to get some extra rich guarantees by threatening one to take the business by the other. Um, by eight, 2018, those checks were harder to come by, though, um, when both companies pivoted to CPM guarantees instead. Uh, Taboola and Outbrain say that their combined scale will allow the company to offer marketers a level of scale that might make them attractive alternatives to Facebook and Google. Um, both companies reach over 1.2 billion monthly unique users. Do you think that publishers, um, some of the fears or concerns that they have are valid, or is this just another one of those? I don't know. There's been a lot of mergers lately. Um, there has been a lot of mergers, and I um, I think it it speaks to the fact that to compete with the platforms like Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, Apple, um, you there's this field that you need to be powerful. Like you need some kind of bargaining or negotiating power. And so the larger you are, the more first party data that you have, um, the better chances you're going to have to um, create better opportunities for yourself. I, I actually don't think that that's the case. Um, I actually think that the, that the conglomeration actually makes that problem probably worse because it makes bigger things for other things to get. I think what we've seen at the top of telecom is that you once had a lot of really big telecom conglomerates, and then you see these major acquisitions like Time Warner, um, AOL, you know, Oath is this huge, like weird digital telecom conglomerate now that owns Verizon and Yahoo and AOL. And um, yeah, I think when you start to see that take place, what, what that ends up being bad for is consumers in a lot of ways. But as a publisher, what happens is you become more beholden to to all these different parties. Um, I One of the things I like about digital publishing is that even independent publishers or even legacy publishers that own multiple publications, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, I mean, Hearst is kind of almost this example. They're almost get, reaching that, that phase. But uh, I like the the idea that someone can start a business or grow a business into being, you know, uh, a powerhouse or conglomerate, and that's that's one of the things that's been lost recently in tech, where the American dream used to be you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to start a business and you'll be the next Google, but now the American dream is that you uh, create a business and you get bought by Google, and I I like that digital publishing still embodies that kind of original American dream. Um, and it's, it's, it's a global one, but that's, you know, that is something that's defined as quote unquote, the American dream. So I, um, I'm not a huge fan of the conglomeration. I, I don't know that it's ultimately a great thing for, for everyone. Yeah. Um, the last topic I have today is Google will use AI to determine how often site visitors see ads. So this one is from media post. 
Uh, Google has introduced technology built on artificial intelligence that estimates how likely it is that visitors will land on a publisher's site that serve the same ad through Google Ad Manager. So this is all without real revealing any data through third-party cookies. So this is a way for advertisers to manage ad frequency and display in Video 360. Um, and it's intended to reduce the number of times an ad is served to a specific consumer without collecting data and compromising their privacy. So the tool, which Google plans to add into Google Ads for display in the near future, will generate predictive models based on traffic patterns where third-party cookie is available, and it'll analyze them in an aggregated level across the Google Ad Manager. Um, so when there's no third-party cookie present, Google can optimize on how often those ads should be served up to a site visitor. So I know this is more on the marketer side of things, but this is something obviously that will affect digital publishers. For sure. So right now there's a new arms race, which is everyone can see the future and that the future is potentially no more third-party cookies. I think whether that's good or bad, like we're, we're maybe heading that direction, and so that means we've kind of talked before, like what first party data is and what third party data is. But um, everyone wants to be someone that holds that first party data because first party data means I can probably still target Shelby, right? Um, not having first party data at all means I can target people that read articles about cooking. You know what I mean? Um, so the the difference there in value to an advertiser is way greater for when I can target somebody specifically and not necessarily just Shelby, but knowing attributes that you have, you're, um, you're of a certain age, you live in a certain location, um, you know, device type, all, just all the different types of things that I can grab, um, browsing behavior. So when you have that kind of information, it becomes way more valuable. Now, the problem is, is that everyone is trying to find a solution for, if you have none of that kind of data, like what is the next thing when no cookies exist? And everyone has a solution. So like you're going to hear about people in Europe that are banding together to create their own. There's all these DSPs and SSPs that like are like seeing the end of the road that aren't going to make it. Their business isn't valid anymore. And they're going to say, you know how we're going to stay involved? We're going to be an intermediary. And, um, you know, Crux and uh, Moat both came, had a brilliant business model a long time ago. Publishers and um, and advertisers could never agree on impression data, what was viewable, what wasn't. So along pops two giant softwares that um, uh, that tell you um, exactly if an ad was viewable or not. It's basically a it's a middleman shakedown. And um, what happens is is you have Moat and Crux now, which have both been bought for nearly a billion dollars, and their whole point in existing was to just sit in the middle in a lot of ways between advertisers and publishers and be a neutral third party. Um, there's a lot of people in this space that want to be that neutral party that's like, we've got a great cookie solution. Um, and Google will probably be the one that everyone uh, adheres to because for advertisers and publishers, it's where the majority of their revenue goes or is acquired from. That said, it what they've outlined in the article about using AI to kind of match, like kind of stitch stuff together. It, I do not, I've been wrong about this stuff before, but on, to me on paper, knowing what I know about the ad space, AI, machine learning, it does not seem pro like probable to me that it will be 
all that much better than just straight contextual. And and probably initially it's going to be bad. Like it'll suck really bad. They'll have to do a lot of testing. But um, yeah, it's not, it's not going to be as good. I, I, that's my prediction and that they'll, they'll move forward with something else. Yeah. Seems like kind of just a good way to get ahead of all the, I guess, um, not really uncertainty, uncertainty with cookie tracking because we kind of know what direction it is, but to kind of just find a solution before the problem exists. So Google recently did a major reorg and a big part of that was uh, a huge emphasis on privacy and um, you could tell just by the, the people that they had put in charge and the way that they had structured the, the new organization in terms of headcount that this effort to find what is the path forward whenever cookies and things like that are gone. So how can we put forth a face for Google? Think of, think of this like an executive that says, we take privacy very seriously and we have a system that allows advertisers value and a system that allows publishers to make money, we guess. They don't get publishers come last in this equation, unfortunately. And then consumers, don't worry, your data, whatever you think that is, is not being violated. Um, and I think that this is probably the first thing that they've been working on that has some kind of validity, so it's out there. And uh, my guess is it'll probably iterate and maybe change completely in the next two years. Right. Well, that's all I've got for this week. Uh, is there anything you want to add? Uh, I'll add that uh, I've been noticing a lot more uh, iTunes reviews here recently, and uh, we really appreciate those. It helps us grow the podcast and expand um, what we're trying to accomplish here. I know that um, we've talked before about adding additional podcasts and um, and just trying to do more and more that we can that is helpful. And so those reviews actually do help us do that because it helps uh, pickle, which I don't know if they know. We've talked about this before. We've like slow played why we call you the pickle. But mm-hmm. if you if you write us an iTunes review and you email it to skang at ezoic.com to show that you wrote a review, she might just tell you why we call her the pickle. So there's an incentive <laughs> for you. But that all being said, uh, it helps us dedicate our time to this podcast, which hopefully you find helpful and enjoyable. And we thank you for that. So that's it. Anything else, Shelby? Um, no, are we, or are we allowed to announce our Poptelligence London date? Yeah, yeah, we can. Oh, yeah. So we've got Poptelligence London taking place on November 14th. 14th. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are in the London area and you're interested in attending or learning more about it, um, do we have a landing page set up? Yeah, if you, if you just Google Poptelligence London, um, you'll, you'll find the landing page. It's hosted at Google's office uh, there in London uh, off of Victoria Street, I believe. And, um, yeah, so if you'd like to attend, uh, applications are open. Seats typically go really fast for these. This one's a little bit more limited because of the space they have us in. But, uh, yeah, if you have the opportunity to, to make your way over, uh, let's do it. All right. That's all. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Publisher Lab.